are now. Think of ourselves as living on the opposite of some historical divide from the people who lived in the past who really believed you know, that there was a dragon living in the cave over the hill or you know, the, the world was 4,000 years old or whatever it was, that there were goblins in a kind of enchanted world. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason Hazal are so powerful and so compelling as intellectual figures is because they um, experience a foreignness to the Bible and also a deep fascination and love for it. I think in a certain way that we, is a good example for us who experience a real foreignness to them, I uh, can also experience a deep fascination and love for them. But I actually want to go one step further and suggest that at least for Hazal, and this is maybe even Pshat, the great dividing line in the, kind of the history of the world between an, an enchanted magical past and the present isn't between them and the Tanakh, but between the first part of the Tanakh and the book of Esther. So the book of Esther is actually the first book that happens in their recognizable, historical, secularized time. Um, and I want to do, start off with these, so we're in the, I think the orange sections now. I want to really just kind of like start into there and really to, maybe to take a step back to frame this in what, just one larger way. What I want to kind of present at the end and discuss for a few minutes with you all is the idea that maybe, oftentimes I think we have a picture of what a religious worldview looks like, you know, a strong God, miracles, certainty, etc., versus a secularized worldview. Um, which has the opposite of all those things, Richard Dawkins, right, you can put in that column. And what I want to suggest is that actually the Torah encompasses both of those. And those kind of go under the titles of, of Pesach and Purim, respectively. Um, and that that should make us wonder whether secularism is a threat to religion. Maybe religion actually incorporates secularism within it, as we'll see. Okay. So let's get started. How are we going to get from here to there? Let's go. Um, okay, so we're going to start doing something that I have absolutely no head for, which is paying very close attention to the dates on which things happened in the Bible. Um, so someone want to volunteer to read this first section. We're in, um, in the you know, Exodus chapter 12 here. The Israelites are about to leave. They're getting their last instructions for what to do for their, their kind of final days in Egypt. I uh, Take your pick of language. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So we have very clearly there's to be a korban pesach. This animal is to be slaughtered inside a home. The blood is to be placed on the lintels, which, if YouTube doesn't lie, is not unlike what the Samaritan Passover today looks like. Um, there's actually a, a piece of the animal dipped in blood and spread on the lintel and the doorposts. And that that's to be done on the 14th of Nisan forever and ever. Right? The picture here, just to be really clear, is that your, your Pesach Seder should involve slaughtering the animal and its blood going on your doorframe. That's how you should remember this uh, great saving moment um, is in, in precisely this ritual form. That's not what it looks like in Sefer Tarim, etc. But for now, that's what it's prescribed to look like in the future. Yeah? Okay, so now fast forward to the book of Esther. So there's actually two critical dates in, in the Purim story. One of them is the one that we talk about, the date of Purim, 
right, in the middle of the 12th month. Um, but that actually, that date is set on a second date, which I want to look at with you now. So uh, do you want to keep going? You're doing such a great job reading. <laughs> read us through. Read us through. So this is now, right, we're in, we're in chapter three here. Haman has ascended. Um, and Ooh. he, thank you, thank you. Um, we, that, we're all Yotze now on the Boeing, I think. Um, he's ascended. He has, um, he has won his way um, into uh, Ahasuerus' trust. He has um, kind of gotten approval for his uh, plan to destroy the Jews. And all that's left to do is to decide when that will happen. Okay. So now when, when does that deciding when the destruction will happen occur? Great. So the right the, the whole kind of picture, the promulgation of the, and the, the sense of impending doom uh, for the entire city and the Jews in particular. And when does this decree when is this decree promulgated? On the thirteenth, not of Adar, of Nisan. Right? Look in the very first verse there. Ah, so it's good. So the first is Harishon. Right? So it's actually like an interesting moment that we tend to blip over in the Megillah to like imagine on a certain day you'll find out like in eleven months you and the family will be killed. Right? Like there's a there's a movie to be made there um, in those those eleven months. Um, and that is the time. So the 13th of Nisan is when this decree is made. And now let's just keep going with one more passage here from the Megillah uh, and, the Ra and Rashi who picks up on this. Yeah, keep going, keep going with this Megillah. And Great. So on the 13th, or maybe the 14th now we found out, Esther says to Mordechai, what, are we, what do I want everyone to do for the next three days? Fast. So that's happening on the 14th, 15th, and 16th of Nisan. Where do you see that? Ah. Well, so Rashi sees it. You don't need to. Don't don't rely on me. Oh, so I got I got someone backing me up here. Okay, so read this Rashi here because it's a very nice plan. Do you notice in verse 17 there? Vayavor Mordechai. Mordechai went, but Rashi's going to read that as Lashon Avera. He said. So let's let's just read this Rashi here to, to seal the deal. Do you want to keep reading? Right, so that's the phrase. By Avor Mordechai al-Dat, not just Mordechai left Esther's presence, he violated the halakha. How? 
ניתנות ביום טוב, בשעון של פסח, ניתנות י"ד, כשיתנה י"ד בניסן, בט"ו, בט"ז, שהרי ביום י"ג נכתבו הספרים. Great. So as Rashi observes here, I mean, it's, it's, hiding, it's hiding in plain sight for all these years. <laughs> so I just want to be clear, you can, on some level, you cannot imagine a starker contrast between what Exodus 12 tells us we're supposed to be doing, right? In the future, you will be redeemed, you will be free, you will be safe, and you will remember that all of that goodness traces back to a time when it was worse and God miraculously saved you, and you will do that through slaughtering an animal and feasting. And instead, here we are in Shushan fasting because we are not free and we are not safe. And we don't really care about the, fast because the, future, the past because the future seems very short and dark. Right? Like that's, I mean, all that work has been done just by lining up those dates. Yeah, well, or, I, I don't want to spoil the punchline, but if you're talking about secularism and religion, in other words, if, you can, if you're secular enough to give up Pesach, that's you've gone a long way. <laughs> Say words, more. If, if, if Pesach is one of the most widely observed oh, very observances, right. this, in this time and place, Pesach's yeah. easy to give up. I, and actually, I can go the exact opposite, because it's not a thing that I have need to hold on to. I can, not to mention, I can, I can bewail, I can bewail my, 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 my place, because I, I don't actually have anything to hang on to to try that's holding on to. Very, very. It's, like, it's not just that it's optional to give up. It's actually kind of, it, it would be um, almost grotesque to observe Pesach right. under, this, under this decree. Okay, but then you have the, the stories of the Holocaust of people who <laughs> risked their lives to eat yeah. pizza and, uh, you know, all those Shailo uh, and Shushan yeah, so interestingly, right. And, and all, right, so this is not, and that's not Esther's and Mordechai's response, right? Esther and Mordechai, the urgency of the present overwhelms the, the beauty and grandeur of, of ritual in the past. It's not, like, it's really, like, it's a, it's a striking moment in that way. I, and I don't know if people, like, it's one of those ways that you can actually make very powerful midrashim just by lining up dates. There's a, in the Psyktodor of Kahana, I think it says, you know, Sarah was released by Paro on the 14th of Nisan. Right? And in just that one line, it points out all the parallels, right? They go down because of famine, taken captive, released with great wealth, right? Just by like lining up the dates, you can illuminate all of this. So, oh yeah, Eric. As soon as you fast, I think, because you kind of fall into fasting. It's like you skip a meal, because you're busy getting all the you know, knowing that this is going right. to happen, and you skip the next meal. You have yeah, no like, idea what you're talking about. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and, and that happens with people sometimes. It certainly happened in my life sometimes. And I wonder if that could, I don't know, I just sort of imagine that sort of emotional valence that these are people who you might, there are things that could push pace off consciousness out of your head if you're Esther and and it's really interesting to think about then the Mishnah is in, preoccupied in with fasting right before Pesach in order to accentuate the transition right. into the celebratory feasting. And that's precisely what's being uh, erased here. Yeah. So the, the intent, the Rashi's intent, the tradition's intent to make this fast on the first day is so great because we did skip 14 Sukkim. <laughs> in which the give and take and you know the Amazon package of clothes we won't wear and all, all the other stuff that happens to have happened, right? The decree is, comes out on the 13th. How fast does news travel? Mordechai yada, right? So there's Great. like there's there's a desperate urge to make this fast that Esther ordained happen on Pesach because in the in the narrative give and take of the next 14 verses, that's a 
Beautiful, right? You could you could schlep that out over a few days. You could even say something. They started fasting the day after the Seder. That's why we start counting the Omer. Right? You could imagine some whole other mythic connection you would build. But instead, it's like an attempt to draw that like head-on collision out as much as possible. I love that. Yeah. I just wondered, is it possible that that, uh, that there was, there's a conscious attempt to cancel Pesach for the benefit of the authorities? I Which mean, authorities? Well, I mean, if, if Esther's about right, if Esther's about to sort of say, no, no, we're loyal citizens of of, of your kingdom, Achashverosh, right? The kind of the refutation of that is, what do you mean? You're, you're, you're celebrating a holiday in which the whole premise of it is destroying a, a king. So the idea might be. I mean, I was wondering, but it's, right. it's, not, it's, it's sort of we're consciously um, uh, performing our loyalty uh-huh. to Achashverosh by letting Pesach go by. Very nice. You wouldn't, to, you wouldn't have to fast in order to make that point. Well, you would have to forbear from Pesach observances altogether. You, you could have, have, you could have a hot dog direction. for dinner. You could just do nothing. Right. I guess so. You could eat a I piece of bread. Some bread. Yeah, Daniel. <laughs> but I also, I think that part of, part of what's happening in, in, in Esther, like, the king is confused that she's Jewish later. Like, she's clearly not outwardly doing anything that makes her Jewish. She's like, I mean, I don't, it, I think, you know, is it clear that the king that Mordecai is even Jewish, right? Like they're they're not participating in their Judaism in any way, in, in any outward way that makes it so that they know so that the king knows that they're Jewish. So, is it a, is it just a Passover thing here? I, I think it seems like it's not. It seems like they have kind of eschewed all of any kind of Jewish... So I want to move us one step forward now, which is to look with me at the bottom. I guess it really starts on the top of page three, all the way through. Uh, I'm sorry, on the top of three, all the way through four, and uh, onto the middle of five is an extensive set of literary parallels between the Yosef story and the Megillah. Um, the, these, I think, were originally connect, collected by the editor of the uh, Megillah Esther Dat Mikra volume. And the idea here, um, this is really actually inspired, I think, or my take on it, is inspired by Judy Klitzner's great book, uh, what is it, Biblical Sequels? Subversive, Subversive Sequels, how biblical si- stories mine and undermine each other. Um, and the idea is that the way you write in, the, in a biblical idiom, the way you write a commentary on the book of Exodus is not saying, I'm now going to write a commentary on the book of Exodus chapter one. You know, here's my take on Shifra and Pua. Here's my take on the new king, right? You do it in a, in a subtler way by retelling the story. And I want to give you just one example of this. We're going to do a lot of these in Kavruta here. But if you look at verse, yes, on page four, the second box, the second box. Okay, good. So these are, the, they both start off, you'll see, these are quotes, right? The left and right columns are, are what are suggested as prose. These are the two appearances in the Tanakh of the phrase Vayik Butsu et Kol. That's pretty good. So the one from Genesis, right? Vayik Butsu et Kol, Ochel Hashanim HaTovot HaBaot HaEle, Avayitzburuvar Tachat Yad Paro, Ochel Ba'arim Bishamaru. Right? This is Yosef giving the suggestion that in the years of plenty, they should gather together the excess, uh, the surplus for storage, versus with Achashverosh, Vayik Betsuet Kol Na'ara Betula Tovat Mar'el Shushan Habira El Beit HaNashim El Yad Hagai Saris HaMelech Shomer HaNashim. Right? The gathering together here is actually a, um, it's like a human trafficking, really, um, of young women. And you, you see here, I mean, it's like a very, like you can draw many kind of parallels then between the assertion of a certain kind of sovereignty by like the gathering together, the expropriation um, of people and of their uh, resources of women and the, and the economic produce. And just one of the things that this highlights, which I think is really interesting to think of these as parallels, as anti-parallels, is how um, rife 
the king, um, how rife with sexual intrigue the Megillah is, in contrast to Parot's um, very, very desexualized bureaucracy. Right? There is that kind of like intrigue with like Potiphar's wife. But once you get into Paro's palace, actually, it's kind of amazing. In contrast to Akashur, you have chapter after chapter after chapter, and there's no sexuality. And anyway, even though we know Yosef is beautiful, right, it's like very degendered. Um, in contrast to like one of the main things that seems to animate Akashverosh in his court um, is like sexual attraction and intrigue. To the point where I just want to be clear, right, at the end, it's actually amazing. The crime that Haman is convicted for is of right, assault on the queen, which is not a crime even committed, right? You kind of get the sense that it's, you know, this, anyone can be, to, you know, convicted at any moment, it seems. So this is like one of those moments where that, that single parallel starts to draw out like a lot of interesting associations into both stories. So my suggestion, whenever people put a sheet of parallels like this before you, is to like try it on for size, right? It's like, okay, probably some of them are good, Probably someone got excited about a few of them like this and stretched with a few of the others. But to try to let the cumulative effect of them, tell me like whether or not it, you buy it, that there is basically that the Megillah is crafted as a conscious kind of response to um, the, the Joseph story. And the thing that I, I want to suggest is that all of the things we see on pages three and four are parallels leading up to, the page break came out in the wrong place, what's on the bottom of four and the top of five. Um, which are the kind of like great climax moments, um, which I think are really strongly built as anti-parallels in literary ways and in kind of like psychological ways and theological ways. Um, and so I want to really take, let's take a good like 15 minutes in Havruta um, to like make your way through these. Um, I would suggest kind of like maybe looking over them all very quickly and then zooming in on a few that you find particularly interesting. And then what we're going to try to do, what I want to do at the end is when we come back together is first hear from people what you thought was like particularly compelling or interesting um, and your, your final verdict about whether you buy the parallel and then to spend some time uh, really carefully on that anti-parallel um, at the end from chapter 45 to 50 of Rishi versus chapter 4 of Esther. Um, so if you haven't gotten the chance to learn with the person next to you, this is a great opportunity and I'll let you know uh, when we've gone through 10 minutes and have 5 minutes left to bring us back. Now we're, now we're coming back. Okay. Okay. Um, first, I want to hear, did, did anyone something like really jumped off the page? You were like, that's good. I like that one. You've got me. Particularly interesting, convincing, troubling. Oh, you could not be more synonymous, more identical. Yeah, Haley. Just like the first three comparisons, like, we're, like, you're like, wow, like, that really like jumps off the page. And then beyond that, it's kind of like, well, a little bit more. Okay, great. It goes downhill. Yeah, Judy. I think linguistically maybe weaker, but thematically stronger is uh, the beautifying and embalming. Yeah. Anti-parallel of like, prepping them in some synthetic way for their glorious future as maidens, right? Or prepping him synthetically yeah. for his like, glorious death. And it's just, I love it. Great. Yeah. It occurs to me, like, right, there's like, different kinds of pairs. There's ones where there's echoes that are ironic, and then there's ones where there's echoes that are non-ironic. And in particular, the non-ironic ones are the ones that would be the Echa trope in the Megillah. Huh. So draw, point us to one of those. I um, heard your Chavruta over here, and yeah. working in Echa, um, more necessary. 
Um, so right, so the last two, right? Mm-hmm. The last two in the thing are both I read, they're both read in Echa trope, and that's where mm-hmm. Esther is really mm-hmm. rising to the challenge of being heroic. Yeah. And and she's echoing earlier, you know, Yaakov and Yehuda also really at moments of pre- tremendous Mesirut Nefesh yeah. in both of them. Yeah. Right? And so at that point it feels like the parallels are very are intended, but they're not it's not like a parody or a kind of a carnival, a carnival, a right. right, it's a direct use of Those are the thing. moments of terror in the Megillah. Right. Yeah, I, also, I cannot let this moment of talking about Yaakov and his, you know, his fear of losing Binyamin mm-hmm. pass without, I mean, in these times when daily refugees die making da- dangerous um, treks, yeah. right, this is the moment, right, this family is fleeing famine, and this father would give up everything he could not to put his children in danger. Um, and you see the trauma here, even of a successful passage where everyone survives, that the, the one thing he would have given everything he had to prevent um, put a situation but he didn't want his son to be in, he had to put him through in order to have like a hope of survival. Right? The penyikar enu son baderech, lest a tragedy befall him on the way. That's, that's what happens right, in, in the Mediterranean and, and, and so many different places around the world. Like, that's our story right there in Breshi. Yeah, I want to follow that. Ki'ech is the way to break the camel's back. Say more. So in, in, in the last parallel, before the contrast, so in each case, it is the last thing that the uh-huh. good guy has to say in order to get the antagonist to break. Uh-huh, right. It's, the, it's like the thing that, it's a tearjerker. Like you, can't, you can't stand up to that. So on the whole, I'm curious. People were like convinced, intrigued, skeptical. Like, where did you where did you come out at the end? One of the things we were struggling with is that it's it's a range, meaning it's from from 39 to 44, and it's all over Esther, not in a chronological pairing, which makes it more, which made it a little less compelling. Right. The two stories don't line up. Scene one, scene two, scene three are all parallel to each other correspondingly. Yeah. Also, we can a little bit. we were kind of talking about this is that it's not this parallel even in terms of the plot. Like you're always comparing Joseph basically to different people in the Esther story. It's different. Right? The role of Joseph is disaggregated. It's kind of Mordechai. It's kind of Esther. There's even one moment where I think Haman, it was Haman. And Haman, and so right, right, right. Right. So and, here's and the savior being compared to. Right. Do you know what I mean? The, right. the, it's very suggestive that we compare Yosef at that moment to Haman, the great enemy of the Jews who's afflicting them, right? It's actually a kind of a brilliant critique, right, to develop this character in Haman and say, like, that's the just right, Kamocha Kefaro, right, that you're just like Paro. There's that reading of it, like, yeah, you're just as much of a jerk as Paro. Yeah, Judy. But the way that I found, like, Jude Kupner's work most compelling is not by seeing whole stories as being parallel. It's in little tiny moments. So for me, the fact that there are tiny moments that work, that's the power I get from this kind of comparative work. So for me, the fact that it's isolated, I'm cool with that. I like it. I also do, I want to take these, I I do want to ask a question, which is an amazing, like interesting in terms of this challenge. Like, if you were to say, I want to write a story that draws on the literary tropes of the Joseph story, but in this other way, like, well, how would you do it? Right, it's like to think of like the art, like assuming someone was trying to do this, the artistry, right? You have this story in front of you, and you're like, oh, this phrase about like you know you can kind of pull them in different ways, and how much are you the kind of the master of when you choose? And you're like, oh, that's the, just the best one I could come up with. I had to put it here, like a really interesting one. Yeah, John. Just from the 
trying to think, like, what actually is the extent of the claim? It's, it doesn't sound like it's this simple as like, well, did the writer of Esther know or not know the Joseph story, right? right. That's not sort of so up in the air. So then the question is, how much intentionality or what's the agenda to sprinkle these things through? You know, right. Let's say they're there. Is it there because that's evocative of power dynamics or the way that people rise and fall? Or, or cool. is there a more robust point? Right. You know, Right, and so I, I want to suggest there's something, I want to put forward a more robust thesis that we're going to argue and that that's, this is really now to be read in dialogue with the dates lining up from the 13th, 14th, and 15th of Nisan, right, that, which is not a coincidence, I think, right, so we, I think that should kind of prime us or make us wonder how, how much of a strong author there is really building these illusions. Yeah? Also because Esther is from the tribe of Benjamin, right, so there's a relationship, they're both from Rachel, and it was kind of an anti- monarchic story and the things I've read mm -hmm. before from other authors were finding more parallels from the you know from the stories of Saul and how his he lost the kingdom, she gained the kingdom, there's a lot of echoes of language. Very wow, very nice. That's great. That's great. I'm glad you the Binyamin connection is very important and Shmuel was pointing that out also. Yeah. Uh, I just want to speak to the um, fact that we're comparing Joseph to Haman. And the fact that they're both acting at, at a moment where they're pretending not to uh, be advancing their own agenda. Hmm. Um, so in a sense, there it does line up. It does line up, right? It's actually it's a it's a kind of disturbingly good parallel at certain points in the story for and disturbing about what it says about Joseph. So now I want to go to this, this thing that I suggest is the anti-parallel. I, I want to just draw out what I see as going on here. I, there's, so th these are occur at different points in the story, right? Yosef is giving us his um, kind of in authoritative retrospective interpretation of the story, what happened, right? And the thing that's the most, I think the most striking thing is, right, God appears in every, is the actor in every single critical moment in this story, and God acts on, Yosef with an intentional verb, right? So at the beginning you have Shlachani um, Elohim, God sent me. Then you have Vayishlachani Elohim again, God sent me. Then you have Vayisimeni, God placed me. Then you have um, this is a little bit uh, right. It's Samani um, Elohim again, and then in the last one it's um, not you did it, but God Chashva. God thought or literally planned this, right? There's, there's zero ambiguity to Yosef, what's going on, and the answer is God. And the contrast to that between Mordechai and Esther here in this moment of crisis could not be stronger, right? The only thing that we're certain of is that we're not really certain what, what's going on. Even to the level of Mordechai, it's, I don't know if there are any other moments like this in the Tanakh, where Mordechai says to Esther, right, He's like, you might be thinking that if you keep silent, you and your family will survive. That's not true. We never find out whether that's what Esther was thinking. Like, it's an interesting moment in that way. We have his guess as to her, um, you know, kind of self-interested plan. Um, and then, you know, salvation will come from somewhere else. And you'll perish. Who knows, right? He got And here, the contrast is very strong. Rather than Samani, Shlachani, where God has sent me, he got Lamachu, you arrived here. Right? There's no attribution of agency back there to God. And then this, this Ulai is what echoes 
Right? Rather than like the, just the certain declarative sentences that Yosef is giving one after another, Mordechai's like, maybe. Maybe this is how things are, are playing out. So the, the, the level of uncertainty that the characters have in, uh, for Mordechai and Esther versus the high level of certainty that Yosef has matches a level of theological certainty um, and a level of certainty about how the plot's going to end up. Right? We knew... <laughs> Right? We know all along that things are going to end up okay because of the dream and other things. We're in, for Yosef, we don't know at the beginning of the Megillah that things will end up okay. Right? So there's all these different levels that are operating simultaneously. The character's experience of certainty versus uncertainty, God's involvement versus hiddenness, our experiences as readers of how things will end up are all working in parallel here together. Yes? I mean, you can invert that just as easily and say that for Yosef, it's very easy to say, oh, God planned this the whole way at the end with the brothers right. there in front of him looking backwards. And on the flip side, um, Yosef, while the story was happening, was actually hakarish hakarish the entire time, while his family was starting back in Canaan. Right, so which is one of the giant maybe plot holes almost right, you in Brashi. Put on its head just as easily. So for Mordechai and Esther to be uncertain how things are going to go and say, well, maybe this is true, maybe this is not true, let's sort of you know keep quiet. We don't really get Esther's reaction or Mordechai's reaction after the Megillah, looking back and saying, oh God, obviously planned this the whole way. Because right, which is right. We have no retrospective right, unpacking. The narrative kind of ends. But if you would ask Esther at that point, like what happened, obviously or probably or possibly. Possibly, that's a word I Possibly. She could just as easily have said, oh, obviously God planned this the entire time. Ah, good, good. So I, defi definitely possibly. <laughs> First of all, it's kind of like what Albert was saying. God doesn't just appear for Yosef here. Uh, even in Yosef's own words, when he rebuffs the advances of Asian Potiphar, he says, I mean, first he does say, oh, I'll, I'll be betraying my master, I'll be betraying my father, but then he says, Bechatati Kim." So God is on his mind, uh, even in the depths of Mitzrayim when his family's away, and this isn't the end of the story. His dream interpretive uh, powers are from God. He's right, he says, right, I don't interpret dreams, God does. And also, I think that the, the plot absence of God from the Megillah is actually not sufficient to explain the literary absence of God from the Megillah. I, I overheard Professor Aaron right. Kohler say this as a, you know, a throwaway line. He said, you know, think how easy it would have been for someone one morning to say, Mordechai, how are you? And he says, Baruch Hashem. And now God's in the Megillah, phew! Like, like it's actually, like, more straight. You could have God absent from the plot, but still there is an implied reference character somewhere. God's like, kind of definitely absent. Yes? I think he could have meant a lot of things. But and I don't know. believe that Rabbi Hatzalah would come from that place. Yeah. That, that's What's exactly the point. The, the, the argument on its face is absurd because no, there really is nowhere else. No, there is there really is nothing else that could save the Jews other than Esther. So uh, you know, I didn't know where you were going. If I'm if I'm sending an argument to Esther, I, I, Esther probably doesn't find it compelling. Oh, don't worry, we'll get it from somewhere else. Unless Mordechai actually means, in other words. This is, a, this is precisely the point where God should appear in the Megillah. And God doesn't. And in the Yosef story, when the, the brothers are in foreign, that's precisely the place where Yosef shouldn't be mentioning God. And he says, So the, 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 the non-parallel right. so I want And I want to just deepen that on a literary level, right? There's no question, I think, it's, at least to me as a reader, right? Yosef is just speaking his understanding of the world. God sent me, this is how it happened, etc. 
with Mordechai, we're not sure whether he's saying what he thinks is true or trying to kind of get like a six-point rhetorical argument into Esther in like one verse. Right? So even like the genre in which these characters are speaking, we have like a clear certain kind of transparency to Yosef. And it's actually, we don't even know what exactly what Mordechai is doing here. Um, he's, you know, in what, in what way to read him. Um, Daniel, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I just, I was going to um, maybe ask the question. But the, the language about what <clears throat> about what's going to come to the Jews in Esther is not the divine redemptive language. It's not it, it, it's not Geula. It's not you know Exodus. Great. It's not it's Revach v'Hatzalah. Right. right. It's it's something a few rungs below this. Right. Great. And this is I, this is a perfect segue now. So I want to try to kind of really just schematically in a, in a chart way try to map out as many anti-parallels as we can between the Pesach story and the story of the Megillah. And the first, I'll, you know, this I think first one is significant, right? The Pesach story has a vector. It, it ends in a different place than it begins, mm -hmm. geographically and politically, right? The story of the Megillah ends precisely where it begins. We're in the same town, and the same guy is king. And then actually you can take another step even beyond that. Like that. There's that moment at the end of the Megillah that I think often we don't know what to do with where they raise taxes. <laughs> What's going on with that, right? Um, I, what I want to suggest is that is the opposite of the Pesach story also. Right? The Pesach story ends with the total, I, I can't even use these words given his wise, right? The total annihilation of the state and all of its apparatuses and capacities through its army. And it, we find out that at the end of the Megillah the state is stronger and it has the capacity to raise taxes, right? Like there hasn't been any revolution or any overthrowing. It's actually been an entrenchment. And the Jew and, raises them. And the Jew raises them, right? And, and a strengthening of the current order. So it's like another, there's like a geographic movement versus geographic stasis and a political movement versus a political stasis also. So I want to kind of crowdsource this now for more anti-parallels, yeah. I mean, not as it's described in Shemot, but if, if Later on, it's all about the Korban, and the Korban is in the Beit HaMikdash, and the whole Midrash of all of the stuff from Beit HaMikdash was in the big party at the beginning of, uh -huh. of you know, in Hashverosh's party. Like. Beautiful. Right, so one is, right, there's, there's Korbanot versus nothing, temple versus nothing, and then those Midrashim, I think, very elegantly yeah. point that out, that maybe we've gone, it's worse than nothing, right? The, the, the kind of a desecration, desecration from sacred to desecration. Yeah, yeah Eric. At the end of, of Megillah Esther, it says that lots of Persians, what was it, Miyahadim, pretending yeah. to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. And at the end of the Pesach story, it's like the opposite. Like the Egyptians, Dafka, don't pretend to be Jews in order to get out. Yeah. It's almost like this helmet where the Jews become the Jews and separated. And huh, there's a separation. And then also with Purim, too, we have, and it's like ritually, I guess. With Pesach, there's such a focus on there are certain specific foods and eating things. And with Purim, it's this holiday that's like, except for the idea of like the Su'udah, which is maybe is a big exception, there's like, it's oddly empty of foods that we're supposed to be eating. Um, yeah. Great. Except wine. Great. Yeah, Jordan. Oh, so I, I don't like this reason, but I'm sitting with right now. Um, a lot of what Judy talks about when she teaches this type of Torah is like, what if you just took one story and changed the motivation? You just like flip to one yeah. person's motivation. How would that impact the whole story? So I... The question in the Yosef story is, if we assume good intent, that Yosef's talking about God the whole time, and that's his right intent, what if we flip to Yosef's intent, and that mm. Yosef's intent all along was Yosef? And the answer to that story is Mordechai and Esther. Mm. Uh, Mordechai and Esther in this read, 
are, and this, this Revaflatol are gonna come from somewhere else, yet that's not a good thing, because then we don't get any attention for it. Then we don't get our name out there. Uh -huh. It's gonna happen, and we won't benefit anything for it. And uh -huh. it's the Yosef story, wow. if Yosef cared about Yosef. And so what's the ending of that story? It's not liberation. It's higher taxes. It's a stronger. It's a stronger yeah. state that makes people yeah. die, and that's like it's like the anti-Yosef in that. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not the glory doesn't go to God at the end of the Megillah. Yeah. Because yeah, we write we write this book about how great these people were. So yeah. Well, the arcs are of the heroes are kind of opposite. Uh, Moses <laughs> starts in a palace has a revelation experience and winds up a nomad. Joseph hmm. is from a nomadic family, at least from the period when the Midianites get him, he's uh, right. nomadic. He has a experience with visions and a uh, revelation, and he winds up in the cave, as in facing the palace. That's very nice. They go in opposite directions. Yeah. So, I guess two pieces. One in the, just the general holidays. Um, of course, Pesach. We read a ritual piece of writing in which there's no mention of the human character of Moses. God in is the there, right in the Haggadah. And then at Purim, we read this scroll uh -huh. of Esther in which there's all mention nice. of the human beings and no mention of God. So very they're very nice. much in uh, opposite that's very, directions. Very nice. um, and then. This one, it's less a direct anti-parallel, but the, I'm just mulling around with it. Maybe someone else could do something with it. The exodus from Egypt is the birth of the Jews as a people, or the birth of the Israelites. And as far as I know, Mordechai, and I guess the others in this book, are the only ones actually called in Tanakh as Yehudi. Right? Mm -hmm. like, we don't have like mentions literary. of Jews yes. as yes. Jews in the Bible, other than in the book of Esther, where it's Mordechai HaYehudi. So is there something there about uh, birth of the people and then using that title of the people directly Beautiful. in this book. That's very nice. Yeah, John. At first I was going to compare like the name Esther with the name Exodus, but then I thought I'd do it in Hebrew instead. But at least in English you have it as, you know, the action versus the person. Uh -huh. And, you know, then in Hebrew it plays out nicely too, because you have Shemot, right? The, the names. <laughs> and here you have a specific name. Uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. So there's a, you know, where is the focus? The focus is on heroic individuals, whereas everything to do with Passover is about the emphasizing Moses or, the, you know, Very interesting. a certain kind of, of moving out versus this sort of uh, aggrandizing an individual hero. Amazing. Yeah. And yet the popularization of action in, in the Pesach story is presumably the greatest of all miracles. The fact that they would put the uh, blood on the doorpost is one at a time of a constellation of or whatever his name is. Right. Whatever it was, Aries in the sky, which they were worshiping, really all fell. Uh, but this, the, the, the section that we read, it fell on the people to actually actualize action into, into making the miracle happen from heaven. Beautiful. I read a beautiful part, uh, Perush by a guy named Nachlat Svi who notices that in Moses's, um, in, in God's instruction, which we read here, yeah. the, the blood on the mezuzah and, and on the mashkof in that, in that order. Uh -huh. When Moshe repeats it, he With says, put it on, on the mashkof and on the, and Going he takes from this the idea that one is the perspective of Moshe that the miracle is gonna come from heaven. 
uh -huh. God's perspective is that it comes is the opposite. Mm. He expects us so that there should be a reaction from that. He throw roots at the top there. Great. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, let's just take one more from Ori. Ritualized retelling of national liberation and then the Haggadah and Seder, it's Kola Marvel, it's a pair of bits You've got to go on at length and length. Uh -huh. And the Gil is quite discreet. Right. Twice. That's it. Right. Don't hear every syllable in order. In order. Hear it Very all. interesting. We're not extending the story here. Right. Very, that's a great, that's a great, it does feel so different. And each one's kind of opposite. You would want Purim to be like the one with no rules and Pesach food. Also, there's an urgency, and Garrett, and it's both urgency, and you spoke like Pesach, like there's a law. Right, law. <laughs> Great. So this is the kind of thing I've, I, I think about a lot, and I just want to add one, which maybe is obvious to all, that the mode of salvation, right, in Pesach is miracles versus political intrigue, right? And it's like that's, I think, a big difference also, and that gets to like a lot of what you know, Jordan was talking about, these characters, like political figures are often subject to all those kinds of, of temptations. So uh, the, the suggestion I, I want to just put forward at this stage is that, you know, and I think there are, I'm not 100% certain, but I think it's strong enough to be an attractive possibility that the Megillah is really um, meant to mark out a different period in Jewish history than, the Pesach, uh, than Pesach. It's really actually the, the, the beginning of being Yehudim and not Israelites might be actually a great way to put it. And the starkest way of putting that is that there is, at the end of Pesach, right, by the time you're at the 15th chapter, 16th chapter of Shemot, there is zero possibility of somehow, you know, after the, the Egyptian army has been destroyed, of ever ending up back in Egypt in any kind of near term. Whereas there is no guarantee that the next day Mordechai won't fall from favor and will just go back to chapter one, right? There's no, even chapter one is pretty fine for the Jews as things are, right? Like we may actually, the last chapter of the Megillah may be chapter one of the Megillah, right? There is no, like the, there's no future salvation. This is like, it's not, we don't, it's not Geula, this is not Yeshua, this is Revach, that's Allah. It's like, that's like a lifeguard. It's like you can fall in the pool again, right? It's like, that is like deeply, I mean, it's like on some level it's like very depressing and on some level it's very real. Like, that's the picture, the extent of salvation that can be hoped for here is not like a new epic of world history opens up where we're in a new thing. It's just like, we made it through this one. Let's see. And, and Akhaturis yeah. is the complete fool and only listens to the person talking to him and is always asking for the concept. So you're absolutely right. That if Mordecai told him to do something horrible the next day, he would have done it. Right, and maybe Akhaturis is in even a more powerful position now than he was before, so he's like more... Volatile. So I want to suggest now that this is this is Rava's position. So this is what we're going to turn to now for the the second half here is the the fourth generation sage Rava, um, living around 300 in Persia. Um, we're going to look at three statements of his, um, two of which explicitly reference the Megillah and Purim, and one of which doesn't. And I want to suggest that this is not just Rava's interpretation of the Megillah, but Rava thinks that the Megillah is the proper frame for his world the world that he lives in. So we'll do the, the first one of these, uh, we'll do them all together, I think, just because each one is kind of complex. Um, so the, the context here in, in, in Megillah is the question of whether we say Hallel on Purim, okay? And the, there's gonna be a suggestion, well, I'll, I'll, we'll take it from there. There's a suggestion that given that we say it on Pesach, all the more so we should say it on Purim, and then Rav is gonna kind of respond to that. Who'd like to pick up the baton reading? Great, Shmuel, take it away. Uh, Rabbi. Chia Bar Avi said in the name of Rabbi Yoshua ben Karpa, since we celebrate the passage from slavery 
to freedom in Egypt, how much more should we celebrate salvation from death to life? Okay. So the Judy, you like that Kabbalah? I mean, I, I can hold. I can put poles in it, but at face value, it looks good. Great. At face value, it looks good. Let me celebrate here and here, so why not from here and here? Right. And this is what all the Israelites said. Why are you taking us out to die in the desert? They're like, right? Slave life, you know, slavery versus freedom is worth less than life versus death. Okay, great Kabbalah, Homer. So let's see where this goes. If so, shouldn't we also recite Hallel uh, on Purim? Okay, great. So that's a, okay, good chance. So now here's Rava's answer. Rava steps in. There's a few other answers, but his is the most fascinating. Rava responded, there on Passover, it makes sense to say, give praise to servants of God. Hallelujah, Hashem, which is the first verse of Hallel, of the and liturgy. Not servants of Pharaoh. But here on Purim, can we say, give praise servants of God and not servants of Ahasuerus? We are still servants mm. of Ahasuerus. Mm. So <laughs> <laughs> some like like some kind of groans and moans. I think. Yeah. Right. So I mean, the great dissimilarity, right, between the two stories as political parables is how you relate to autocrats, right? Do you confront them, right? Do you confront them and and out of a sense of bravery and, and national defeat pride them. and defeat them and, and celebrate their being drowned in the sea? Or do you cozy ever closer to them because you're frightened of the, the, what, the, what the court is going to be like? Great. Right, and, and right, to the extent that, that Gamara is reflecting its current world, like the age of revolting against Rome is gone, right? The age of trying to like actually defeat Caesar is gone, and a whole new political strategy has emerged, in which will follow us for thousands of years, of cozying Stad up to Leonard. power and not confronting it, right? And so yeah. like, it's a really chilling statement about how Jewish political consciousness has like fundamentally capitulated to autocrats and not and amazing. not you know moved away. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Just, 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 go back for a minute, but embedded within that is just another anti-parallel, which is just that the Egypt story, the Exodus story begins with proximity and kind of friendliness with power and ends in the destruction. Mm. It's, you know, begins with this distance from power, mm -hmm. ends with proximity. And then there's this threat of, you know. Oh, that could that happen again? Of endurance, at least. Of okay, that's amazing. They go, they go in opposite, opposite directions. Yeah. Yeah. Last. I, mean, another thing, I know. I know. There's a, um, there's a history of um, different towns around the world that have had their own local Purim because of a certain yes. experience of Hatzalah, but it's all localized Hatzalah. Right. Same, and, and the the irony is that so is the Miguel of Esther. It's really a local rather than a generalized. Yes. Um, rescue and salvation. Right. Hodu de Kush. Right. right. Hodu de Kush. And this is an argument I know people are familiar with, like the well, whole debate about whether to say Hallel on Yom Hatzma'ut. And there are people who say, okay, given, I don't even want to get in the yeah. argument theologically, etc., <laughs> this is our local Purim. Yeah. And Israel, which is like a totally fascinating kind of take on it. And in, but Rava is local here. That's part, right? Rava is not living so far from Susa, actually. And he says, even here, like, really, what I think is so striking, he's saying, there's nothing really to celebrate. Just like there was no salvation. There's not like a change. There's not. There's no redemption. It's That's just the a slog. The other opinions that are yeah. interesting. The, the first opinion I give says we read the Megillah and that counts functions right. as that. And the other one says that there were whichever order they, that no, we we want this miracle happened outside of Israel. But like Rav is really saying like there's nothing really to mm -hmm. to celebrate. Right. You know, he he he's, he doesn't think in any way there is. Right. There's nothing to celebrate because it's too familiar, right? I mean, that's like what's so, uh, I think, chilling about it. And this is where I think Rav is moving from just a literary read, like we were doing before, of comparing the Megillah to Sefer Breshit 
into now he's like if you think of what we were doing before is drawing an, an anti-equal sign a not equal sign between the Megillah and Breshit now what Rav is doing is drawing an equal sign between his life and the Megillah does that make sense and that's going to get much more intense now in a second okay so the second one this is a Gemara they, people call it one of those quote-unquote famous Gemarot, even though that's a horrible word, obviously. Um, do you think that's a theological position for Rava? That's what, that's what we're going to go to next. Would you like to read the next Gemara? Because sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> now things are going to get really theological, and then they're going to get even more theological after that. Okay, yeah. Oh, I saw a sign that said Minchamarv is downstairs in the sanctuary. Maybe we're good. I hope. Okay, otherwise we'll go to the really beautiful sanctuary. I know people know this. The nice thing about the sanctuary here, it has one of the most uh, unobtrusive pieces of Jewish architecture anywhere in that there are 613 lights in the ceiling, which I find to be really, like, a, it's aesthetically beautiful, and also it's just a beautiful, like, piece of crafting. Um, okay. Uh, Uri. So, now we have to move. We're all going to be busy counting. I, okay. <laughs> really? Wow, I didn't know that. Maybe that's what Okay. So, Uri, take us through just the first verse here from the section from Shemot and then from Esther, and that'll prepare us for this Gemara. All right. And Moshe brought the people out from their camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Okay, they stood at the foot of the mountain, but in the Hebrew, it's betachtitahar, which you could, if you wanted to read hyper-hyper, literally mean underneath the mountain. Okay, that's the piece of background number one. And number two is from the Megillah. Uh, the Jews accepted and enacted for themselves, for their children, and for their dependents, and it may not be violated. They will observe these two days of Purim as written at their time year after year. Great. Okay, that's the background. Now, what do these have to do with each other? Good question. Let's see. Take it away. All right. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Rabbi Barhama Barchasa said, this teaches that the Holy One, blessed be he, overturned the mountain upon them like an inverted cask. And said to them, if you accept the Torah, all the better. If not, you will be buried here. Okay, let's just pause there for a moment. Like, what's the, the image here, right, is of a, a, I don't know, what adverb would you use to describe this depiction of God? <laughs> Terrifying. Terrifying. Adjective. Yeah, adjective. Coercive. Oh, that's good. Mean. Mean. Scary. <laughs> Scary. Great. Yeah, these are, what did you say? Mafia-like. Mafia-like, right? I've got to, let me make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> High, high expectation. High expectation. <laughs> Say a little bit more about that. I mean, it, <coughs> God, God's not going to take a, a, a partial commitment. God's not uh -huh. going to take uh, someone like, yeah, that's that's nice. We get it. We get it. No, you have to fully. You want it. You got to fully embrace it. You got to fully take it. And so right. God has people need to fully embrace it if they feel otherwise they're going to die. Yeah. Well, that's one way to get people to fully embrace something, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's the, that's the whole kicker here. And I also, I just want to point out, even if this image is like kind of like fantastical in the image of like lifting Sinai up, it's a good read of the narrative of being in the desert. Someone's like, you're in the middle of the desert. I'm providing you with food and water. What do you think of this contract I've got for you? Right? <laughs> you're not in a great position. I mean, it actually starts, the closest thing I can think of is like, a relationship with like, kind of these like enhanced interrogation tortures. It's like the person bringing you your food every day like has a few questions for you. It's like you're not in a great negotiating position with them. That's the, the terrifying picture. And I just want to be clear, like, this is, there are all these, you know, reading, you know, Lech Techachar, you know, the, in the verse from Zichrono, and God says fondly, like, I remember <coughs> you following me romantically into the desert, and, like, look back so fondly on the time. It's like a, a kind of a fascinating interpretive choice to see that, like, coercion and terror 
as the like main kind of dynamics of it between Israel and God in the desert, right? Like it's no one forced that interpretation. It's like an interesting like why why would you see it that way? Okay, let's keep going. They don't know each other. <laughs> they don't know each other. Same. They don't know each other. In other words, like it, you you might think the plagues the splitting of the sea, the being in the awesome environment of Sinai would have been enough to get over the fact, would, 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 would have had enough potency to say, well, this is, this. I don't really know you, but that's enough. And so this is saying that's not really enough. It has to be coerced because yeah. they don't have a relationship. This is the beginning of the relationship, not the culmination of the Right, it's like on a first what date. A begin- it's like the- what a beginning, right. Things, it looks like things are going to be great from here on in. Um, okay, so it let's see. It can only go up from here. It can only go up from here. Okay, great. So let's see what Rav Acho Bar Yaakov says. Rav Acho Bar Yaakov observed, this means that the Torah is not a valid contract, since contracts cannot be agreed to under duress. So this is amazing. It's like, you thought the stakes were high before about rewriting the beginning. I mean, this is, I, I, John Gottman talks about, the, right, the marriage therapist, I think, talks about this, actually. That you can tell a lot about couples by the way they narrate their beginnings. Right. This is which I mean, you can imagine. It's actually very rare in my experience to meet a couple that tells exactly the same. Both of them tell exactly the same story about how they got together. Right. Um, so this is like a pretty dire narration of the beginnings here. And then someone says, you know what? It's so dire. Like the wedding was invalid. Right. Like that's that's like, you know, laying down your four aces. It's like an amazing thing. Right. The Torah is like Sinai is so problematic. The, to the extent that the Torah is associated with Sinai, the Torah is invalid. The Sinai, like, it's really clear, right? You can think of like all the different religious positions that try, Sinai was so special that that's what guarantees the Torah is good. Sinai was so amazing, that's what makes the Torah, Sinai was so loving and gross and spicy, that's what makes the Torah valid. This is like, Sinai was so coercive and abusive that it destroys the relevance of the Torah for us. It poisons it. That's where we're at right now. Like, that, I don't think I'm like adding, having to like add a lot other than like flesh out what's here, mm-hmm. right? It's like Sinai is like a lead balloon pulling the Torah down with it. Okay, so let's see how Rava, how, how does Rava save the Torah? Said Rava, yet even so, the Jews reaccepted the Torah in the days of Achashverosh, for it's written, they confirmed and accepted upon themselves. They confirmed what they had accepted long before. So they confirmed and accepted. Something that the Jews had accepted long before at Sinai under duress was now confirmed in Shushan freely. What, yeah. it's like a... So it's a reference to this verse from the Megillah we had. Nine, uh, Kiyamuva Kiblu. Kiyamuva Kiblu, right? Yeah, Judy. It's like a baby being converted and then as Barney Tzad, Barney Tzad, Beautiful. given the opportunity, hopefully not in a fit of adolescent rebellion, given the opportunity <laughs> to say yes to the party. Awesome. That's a great, it's a perfect, it's a, such a perfect, careful. Yeah. It's also reading the Megillah story as covenantal uh, in an interesting way. Uh, you know, that gives Sinai exactly. some moment of one covenant, and somehow in the story of the Megillah, maybe it's the, the covenant which endures even in exile. It's, a, it's another covenantal and an elevated covenantal moment. Yeah, and, and really the only covenantal moment is actually, it's, it's a supersessionist, to use a word that we don't often use to describe your son, right? It's the Sinai, right? The covenant of law that God made with your ancestors is null and void, right? I come, there was a new covenant. In like, Shushan. In Shushan, right, with Mordechai and Esther. So, so, yeah. So the pshat in, in the verse in Esther is that they accepted what? Like, Mishloch Manot and Matanot. Deal. 
It's like, I can get behind that religion. So Rava transforms that into the essence of covenant, as if to say that in the experience that we have of covenant, the only thing, what motivates us is a near-death experience. Oh, that's good. Like a trauma. That's very, that's amazing. So there is a near-death experience in both of them, actually, right? Yeah, Sinai, exactly. the, the fragility of human life is highlighted in both. I just want to point out that the, the covenant here in Shushan is not a covenant between equals, right? God's absence and God's perhaps powerlessness, lack of agency in the story makes this covenant actually almost entirely authored by the people. Right? God is not, not even an object there. The thing that they accepted was the, they accepted the covenant, not God. Right? So, like, it's actually amazing. We have two pictures here of covenant, neither of which is based on uh, shared or co-equal agency. The Sinai is all God, and Purim is all people. And like, let me clear, like, to, to phrase this, kind of put it together structurally, Rava, the way that Rava saves the Torah is by severing its relationship with Sinai. Sinai is irredeemable. Thank God that's not where our relationship to Torah traces back to. Right? It's like, really, it's like you like, cut, the, cut the anchor out so the ship can float. Kind of thing. That's, that's actually like, there, there's nothing. Um, and, and so again, you can see, I just, let's have one, one more thing. I'll take a question. This is again a moment in this Gemara, we see like exactly the two things we were doing before of that in unequal sign being drawn between the Exodus story and the Megillah. And then Rava coming and drawing an equal sign between the Megillah and his world. Right? Like you almost couldn't imagine doing that in a more direct way, those two moves together. Yeah, Josh. You can almost, uh, something you said made me think of this. And, uh, the uh, canceling of the covenant and starting a new covenant. Sounds very Christian. Yes, the supersession is right. I was, I was joking about that. I'm glad that I you know, is, made its way the out. Thing is, here, I mean, this could be an anti Christian polemic to the extent that hmm. they had the covenant canceled and started something new. Wow. We had the covenant canceled and we affirmed the old. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That just reminds me of Yitz Greenberg. Yes. Right? Yes. I think a lot about Yitz Greenberg. Like, you know, Shalah yes. severs. Severs the previous covenant, but then the Jewish people are free to reaffirm yes. it, but on new terms. I wonder if, yeah. but there, right there, it's the kind of like God blew it, right? I mean, God failed to step in, right? And therefore, the the he, it was God's doing, the right? Covenant. I wonder if there's a similar thing animating Rabbi, yeah. which is like Jewish suffering, the near death, the near, the near death, death exactly. Right. But it's not near death; it's God's silence in the face of near yes, death. yes, right? But then, yeah. You know, my father-in-law, who worked at Exxon for 33 years and really imbibed its like safety, safety, safety culture, told me like one of the keys to safety, safety, safety culture is you have to treat a near miss as an accident, like in your tallies, yeah. right. right? Like that was a failure of your systems. If you like, there was almost an accident, and you have to stop almost accidents. You can't, you can't just count the accidents as failures. So I think that's exactly this, right? The near miss is a failure. <coughs> like we've learned that old system. So I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but I'm just playing with the idea that Sinai, right, like part of the power of it is that it was the entirety of the Jewish people collected. It was the entirety of Israel. And here in the Megillah, we have one group 
in Shushan. It's only the Shushanites to whom this happens. Now, the letter goes out to all the Jews. Right. So the implication is all Jews worldwide accept it. But there's something so interesting about Rava's opinion that the universal experience mm-hmm. that everyone experiences together is coercive, and yet the particular experience of a limited group of right. your uh, siblings, family, etc., is enough to make you commit to it, right? Because for the people in Shushan, of course, but why did the people over in Turkey or wherever reading the letter say, that's enough to make me sign right. up again? Interesting. You can start to imagine a fragmented Jewish people as one of the, the after-effects of this story, where people say, well, we accept this covenant because of this, but like, my family didn't experience that. You know, yeah. I'm not really bound by it. Yeah. My acquaintance with Rava in Hanadic tradition is he's portrayed as a skeptic who like, doubts if people say it's Ruach HaKodesh. He says, no, I can show you. It's huh. magical, right? And it happened in several places. And I wonder if that has something to do with his history. I never hmm. thought of him as being sort of secular. I just thought of him kind of a litvak until, you know, I saw the description of today's program. Like, do you see him as this? Okay, so now, so now I want to take your comment and really raise the stakes and ask you to read the next, this next Gemara, which, like, I want to say, this is one of those Gemara that once you see it, I think it's like, sh- like, think about the number of pages of Jewish philosophy you've read. Like, I'll say for me, that's more than I care to acknowledge, and I've never seen this Gemara cited by anyone, and I, I want to <laughs> think about why. So as we're now in, uh, in Moed Katan there, on the middle of page seven. It's very short, but it packs a punch. Do you, do you want to? Yeah. Okay, so would you say Yeah. 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 Yeah, so let's parse this out. So first, like, let's talk about, like... He reads the horoscope. What's the big deal? What did you say? He reads the horoscope. He reads the horoscope. He's just a a guy who lives where he lives. Right. Well, I think it's a little more. Let's let's start at the beginning. It'd be really interesting to ask, like, the three things that you feel like there's the biggest gap in life between how important they are to you and how much you control them. Like that's, I mean, it's like the Stephen Covey, right? Sphere of concern versus sphere of influence, right? Where's Where's the biggest gap there? Like, it might be these three. Your health, fertility, and whether, you know, whether you can put food on the table and have a good retirement, right? Like, that's... I don't don't even know if it's fertility. I I read it as, like, what happens with your kids. (laughs) Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm, oh, that's very interesting, because then it's even less concerned. I think it's probably both. There's the Kamara I'm thinking of, the Yisarin Shal Ava, where it's, there's, are you crying because you don't have kids? but it's very, right, having them and then hoping that they're not wayward, right? These are like, these are like the big things, right? I mean, if you think probably of all the like pastoral conversations you have, if you were to like make a pie chart of the topics, it's like a chance that these would be the three biggest, <laughs> right? They would be up there and certainly among like the hardest of those conversations, yeah. This might be like an overly legalistic reading of it, but you could also say that that, that leaves space for an enormous number of things that might not be dependent on the stars. The quality of life. Uh-huh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful, your right. Happiness and your sense of worth and your sense, you could even throw in there, you know, your sense of connection to a mitzvah and Torah. So it's not clear if those are excluded because he thinks that these three include everything. Right. Or because he's saying, no, no, those three things are controlled by the stars and other things, there's a sense of merit. 
Yeah, so I, right, that, and that we can think about the Hakolbi de Shemaim Chutzmi Yerat Shemaim, right? Everything is in the hands of heaven except for the fear of heaven. But here, maybe the possibility is that heaven is not God, but the, the heavens. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so I'm understanding this also possibly in conversation with Sakatanis, um, right? With the Gimel Matechot that God didn't give to anyone else. Right. Um, that are. Right. Which could be like uh, Geshem, which is income. And fertility. And fertility. Wow. Right? So it's, and they line up perfectly, and it's the complete opposite. Right, because there it says God, these are three things that God keeps control of in the world and doesn't give to anyone else. And now I just, I want us to get into the spirit of what Jordan's saying, that exact opposite, at the end of this line. I just it really clear. It's like, Rav says, you, like, not, there's two steps. One is, you don't have control over these th- things. Which, I, I, I don't know if that, maybe that rings true to you, maybe it doesn't ring true, but it's an amazing statement. And the second step is, like, how many hundreds of verses in the Torah does this contradict? Yeah. I mean, whole swaths of it, right? Like, you couldn't, I mean, it would be an amazing thing. Like, imagine a Sefer Torah where you, like, blanked out all the sections that were incompatible with this. Like, it would be, it would be unrecognizable, Right? Like, I mean, it's actually just a, it's a, it's a breathtaking thing to say, right? All you, like, like you want to know what's going to happen? Just read the horoscope. You don't have to do good things. Don't look in the Torah to find out what's going to happen. That's not actually the source of knowledge, right? It's like, just all, all you can do and need to do is read the horoscope, and you will find out. Like, that is, like, that whole Maimonidean idea that people have to have control over, the, like, 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 which comes from Tvarim and Vayikra and, and everything. Like, no. Listening to Yudonim and all these other. Right, I mean, right. The, the, the Mazla part starts to really get to, start to feel like um, a sorcery in a certain way. Yeah, um, So, at the risk of sort of trying to write out what we feel uncomfortable with that part of the stars, I remember learning an Ibn Ezra commentary, I think, on like the covenant with Abraham, but I don't remember exactly where, but Ibn Ezra writes that the stars do control everything in the world, that the stars yes. determine the fate for yes. all of the world. But once we have the covenant with God, we cut through the stars directly to the source of what's yeah. animating them. And we are now uh, exempt from the stars ruling our lives because the yeah. covenant allows us to behave uh-huh. differently with the reality. So, so I wonder if there's something yeah. here of like, maybe this is a general statement about the world versus, uh, you know, sort of the covenant. And if we read that back into what we're saying during the perm time, if Sinai, right, if the Torah is not valid at Sinai because they have not reconfirmed it, if it's broken, then there's this casting of lots. There's no mention of God. God's not controlling things. What's controlling it? The stars, fate, the horoscopes, everything's luck. And then afterwards, they sign back on to the Torah, um, and we resume with Evan Ezra's idea of the covenant determines our fate the covenant. by the stars. So very interesting. As an aside, there's this amazing Ramban where the Ramban says, right, generally the stars control things also. Um, but God built some back doors into creation so that, like, God wouldn't have to, you know, like, swing Jupiter across the sky to split the sea. God built, like, a special mechanism to split the sea without having to move the stars. And, and the Ramban says that, actually, that's what magic is, is when we figure out the back doors. Like, it's kind of connected to some cybersecurity stuff. Can you ever build a back door that no one else will be able to get into? Um, and, the, and which, it starts to sound like science, actually, right? Like, the back doors into how nature works and yeah. to make, like, new causes and effects kind of thing. So it's really interesting to think about the Ramban as a secularized version of that Ibn Ezra. It's not by getting to God that you can like get into how nature works, but actually by this methodology. Yeah, so I wanted to hear now if you think of Rava as secular or a lit block in this Gemara. Yeah. <laughs> well, isn't there, but there's another I can't think of where this Gemara is built from. They're discussing about, well, look at this sage. He had a 60, you know, 
celebrations in his house. Could somebody else tell me what that is? And yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, funerals at his house. And it's I think it's actually nearby here in Moy Yeah, it was, It's not that one was better than another. I mean, people have different circumstances. Right. Um, I, I mean, except for saying it depends on the stars, that sort of antiquated. But the idea that things depend on chance, and isn't that the whole idea of Purim? There's a lot of chance in casting lots. I mean, there, it worked, and there was a chance it wouldn't work. And that's a very, you could see that everywhere in modern eyes, right? So right. We celebrate because we celebrate him. Beautiful, right? There, right. This is there's actually a lot of the that sense of tragedy, right? Undeserved outcomes. It's not new to Rava, right? That's familiar to us. Yeah. And, well, and that's I, I mean, we're focusing on this line kind of in isolation. I mean, we we just had Rava talking about like you praise God on Passover, right? So it's not right, and and uh, you know the. The, the Torah is, is a valid contract even if it was reaccepted at, at, at Forum, right? Um, and so there's there's this sense that like, you know, there are moments in our lives where we feel like all of those verses in the Torah are blocked out and nothing has right. any control and the stars are, you know, like there's, we don't have any control over it and then we have those times in our life when we say, no, now is when I praise God, now is when, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's like, I just, I felt like we're reading that line overly isolated. Right, it's really like what does right what does praying mean to Rava? What does like being a good person mean to Rava? Like that's a really interesting question. Like we we ask the questions of ourselves, and it's not the same thing every day, right? Right. And it shouldn't be the same thing every day. Yes. Yeah. So you you've connected it to his sort of Purim theology. So in the Megillah, if Esther doesn't win the beauty pageant, we die. If the king doesn't have a second cup of coffee and falls asleep, instead of having a history book read to him, we die. So um, he, he's, he, he sees that at least, at least using Purim as a, as a, a lens to view the world, um, we are totally dependent um, on s- circumstances outside of ourselves. Right. That's right, and that are that are, are not amenable to reason and understanding. I mean, I, I just love the image of like, right, the reason we survived is because like the barista messed up and made Afashverosh like a full calf instead of decaf right. that he ordered. Like that's like, <laughs> like it's like that. Right, so that, so again here, I just want to point out this little Gemara of Rava seems to be a strong not equal sign between our world, he's skipping out the Megillah directly, I'm adding that in here, between our world and say like the promises and curses at the end of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, or, right, name of your passage, right, that, the, the second paragraph of the Shema, not our world. That seems to be, right, it's not, if you heed my commandments, you will be fruitful, etc. That's just not, he says, no, that is factually incorrect. But we yeah. do have beginnings of this in wisdom literature, like, yes. and you know, there's really not a purpose, it doesn't have a Deuteronomistic idea of there's a purpose and there's a story. Yes. Just stuff just happens. Right, yeah. So celebrate, and sometimes you win, yeah, so, and I think that's exactly right. And I, I'm trying to kind of assimilate the Megillah to that as a, as a piece of it also. So I want to take a few minutes here and take the, take the temperature of the room. I, are people feeling like, this is amazing, or like, this is really depressing, and now, like, I don't know. I just, where, where, where are we? Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, I, we're again, but I mean, I'm just looking at the Megillah. I've taught it like this a lot of times, like, 
trying to show um, it is coming from a world where God is very hidden, and there's so many authors who commented on that. And I like to get in this kind of mystical idea because I'm a mystic, you know, it's still hidden, and that's only the hiddenness you really see God. And I work with a lot of people in my congregation who are very secular and don't see that. And I wonder maybe actually, ironically, that's where we come together. We both see the hiddenness, but we just. Maybe I see more behind it, and uh-huh. to them it's about the peoplehood, which is the, also the message of it, the uh-huh. saving, you know, one's people is where you accept the covenant. So we both see the hiddenness. I love the like, paradox of that. Great. Other reflections about where all this, where all this lands or is leaving you right now? Yeah, Jim. I mean, maybe it came across already. I mean, more and more, I despise the Megillah. I mean, just on a personal, <laughs> on a personal level, I just, I, I see its influence as really... I mean, sad and tragic, but also kind of pernicious in Jewish consciousness. Because it's like a forfeiting to the sovereign. It really is the anti-Judaism in tons of ways. I mean, at least the anti-biblical Judaism, right, in in so many ways. And so um, there's there's something deeply sad about the extent to which it was incorporated into our our tradition, even though it may be tremendously true. There's just, yeah. In Qumran, they didn't have it in the Tanakh. You know, like, yeah, sure. I know Martin Luther wanted to purge it from the Bible. I mean, I, I sort of more and more have sympathy for that view. Yeah, less in the Mecca. Yeah. Just to play out, this is, maybe this is why you know, Hasidim is so Makayim Purim, because, because, because so much of Hasidus is to try to find the Kodesh in the whole, you know, as opposed to the Kodesh over there somewhere. The Kodesh is right here, embedded in the whole. Am I making any sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right, Purim is a good setup for the, there's, it's like the world, if you think that the world is kind of God is in, there's an interpretive action in the Megillah, mm-hmm. finding Kodesh, which is like maybe the interpretive action in life, of trying to find the Kodesh, yeah. I don't want to make a spin our wheel, so if you want to talk afterwards, you can, but I, I'm, I, I want to be sold on what you're saying about Moed Katan 28, but I feel like we're overreading that text, and I'm, I'm just not quite convinced Great. Push back. Push back. Well, I, I don't have much to add to what I said before. I just feel like it, it's 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 certainly in, in, intriguing and incredibly powerful, but I just feel like it it it's not a conclusive statement about the operation of the world and whether that yeah. agency matters or not. It's yeah, I do. Yeah, so I well, I agree. I I agree with not wanting to like read this as like a philosophical proposition. Rev is putting forward for a lot of reasons, but I do just want to note how like you wouldn't put like. A lot of bitachon in Hashem. Like, I think that's very hard to reconcile with this more, right? It's like, just like, trust in Hashem that everything's going to work out. Like, it's hard to imagine Rava doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, now, there may be other things he's responsible for, the other things Hashem is responsible for, but like, the basic sense that like, we rely on Hashem to like, take care of us, or we know that Hashem will take care of us because we've been good, like, those, you know, I may have a lot of unorganized things, sure. but I also maybe have a, a short, lonely, poor life. <laughs> I've got a lot of other things, but I also have that, right? Like, I don't think you should. Yeah, you'll have it in the north. I was I'm thinking about the anti-Judaism comment, that in a lot of ways I thought Purim that way too, but the, Purim has always seemed like a deeply human holiday to me for that reason that a lot of cultures have, and not that, not to take away from Purim specificity, but a lot of cultures have basically like a, a release pressure valve day. Like carnival. Carnival, yeah, where it's just like, okay, guys, we've had some really high expectations all year. Uh, things aren't really the way they're supposed to be anyway. And we're yeah. just grinding away. And then one day, it just, it just needs to release the pressure. So I find, I find this very, I find very human. I also find it very kind of grown up. It adds yeah. a spice of grown up to the religion. Yeah. Like, I, 
it makes me think of parenting or teaching. It's like you just you want to teach over and over again. If you do good things, good things happen to you. There are consequences. There this is this. When you're adult, you might be able to handle it. That's not totally true, but we want it to be. And we work for it to be. And that's the world that we try to create. But at the end of the day, there's chance. Yeah. And there's people who don't do what they deserve all the time. And that grown-upness, I think, is the lesson of the kind of the arc of the liturgical year on one read, right, begins with Pesach. It's not that Purim comes right before Pesach. It's that Purim comes long after Pesach. The year begins with Pesach. Like, the kids, the hope, everything's provided, parents can save for us. And it ends with us as, like, you know, lonely adults, like, hanging on by by a thread. That's, like, a certain developmental arc, yeah. Well, just sort of avoiding some favor of this, very short, um, probably piece that I, I feel like in some ways it helps people who don't have these things to look not and say, it's not a reflection on me. Right. You know, like I, I'm thinking of what you were talking about, people coming to me as a rabbi. I think there are yeah. so many people who feel like, you know, this person, it, 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 it relieves them of... I totally agree. I'm, uh, you it, have burying young people and children. Like, I, I want to, this is from, it's much frommer to say this yeah. than that there's a God who's orchestrating this sometimes. You know, that's like the other way of looking at Moe Katan and what Rub is saying. Like short life, yeah. Sometimes we there's some kind of cosmic mix up we, we don't we we can't explain. But I don't even just mean God. I mean God. But Rather, also not people, me. Human agency. That there's luck in life. That right. people you know you can whatever how who your children what happens to your children? Like that I guess that's the one that I, I feel like I'm flooded with most from people, right. and it's the one that I think is in some ways the most potent because it's an extension, you know, people see it as an yeah. extension of themselves in terms of nature nurture, like both, like you're, wh- whatever you are, you your children become to some degree, and when that doesn't go according to plan, people really face such despair, not only for their kids, but this idea that like, they're right. God, you know, like right. they're the creator, they're the nurturer, and then if it doesn't go right, what does that mean? And sort of be able to, you know, and, and very often I think it is true. It's like a lot of that is just, even though this was like flesh of your, my yeah. friend, flesh of your flesh, even though like you raised this child, yeah. that there's, there, it's a different person, there's luck, there's stuff happens. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that you just need to, I, I find it yeah. like a reassuring Yeah, I'm so good. I, I remember I was at the funeral of a, it's hard to say, it was like of a two-year-old who died of a congenital heart defect. and. Uh, person who gave the Hespage, who was also his grandfather, um, said, he, like, he stood and he said over and over again, he said, no one did anything wrong. Exactly. Like that. I was, because I, I remember watching as he was getting up Shoot. to say, it was like, what can you say? And it was like such an incredible, he was like, no one did, he was like, his family and the Cleveland Clinic, and it's like, everyone did everything they can, and it's like the thing we need to remember today and like every day going forward. And like, that's, like, that's Rava on some level. Yeah, Judy.
Jews go and like slaughter all the Nazis. Like it's a Quentin Tarantino, Brad Pitt is the ringleader of these inglorious bastards. And it's the Jews like winning the day and how cool would that be if, but it's also that like, you feel gross at the end, but it is the day of like, let's just pretend it all like, let's go to our wildest fantasies and it feels good to have a day. Like my son's gonna be Batman. Like his dreams come true, but he can't actually be Batman. And it's right. a day to like play out the fantasy. Okay, great. So I want to now take this in a, like a theological direction. I, I, I appreciate that kind of like pastoral and human depth. I want to make it a little bit more intellectual now to bring us up out of this. Um, actually, I want to do this in, in the reverse order. So first turn to page nine with me in the source sheet. I'll walk you through this really quickly. Because um, this is so, this is now me drawing an equal sign between Purim and our world. Um, so we have the very, very end of the Megillah. Um, and Mordechai the Jew is second to the king Ahasuerus and head of the Jews and popular among his brethren. It's like, of course he was, but literally favorable to most of his brethren, on which Rashi picks up to most of his brethren, but not all of his brethren. Right? This teaches that some of the high court did not support him because he abandoned Torah study for politics. So the picture here, right, I mean, it's like hard not to imagine certain Israeli right, political religious entities here. But the picture is Mordechai. It's an, it actually gets to this tragedy, right? Mordechai sees this situation. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He like spent all day learning. Um, and then he was like, the moment requires that I leave Torah study for politics. I have to make a politically expedient choice here and like get my hands dirty. And, and, the, and the tragedy of this story is at the end of the day, we actually never know whether Mordechai was right. Right? There's another narrative of the Megillah, of the people who stayed studying Torah, that it was their learning and davening that saved the Jews. And unlike with Yosef, we don't have a reveal at the end about who was right. There are now two unresolvable narratives about what saved the Jews, which mean that right, in this world without revelation and miracles, we are left with uncertain choices, not just in the future, but unresolvable narratives about what worked in the past. Right, which is also a total difference than Pesach. Like, none of us has any ambiguity that, like, oh, maybe it was X, Y, or Z that saved like, you know, exactly what saved the Jews of Pesach, at least according to the story. Whereas here, you have like, incompatible worldviews are born out of the kind of interpretive uncertainty of the world, the lack of a reveal at any point, beginning, middle, or end. Are you talking about alternative facts? <laughs> no. No, I'm actually talking about everyone shares the same facts. Even on the same facts, you can't get to the same, you can't whittled down to one interpretation, um, which is that, that feels like extremely contemporary. But now I want to turn us, because I can't, I can't teach about porn without talking about my, my hero, Rabbi Chastai Kreskes. So on page eight, we have this section from Or Hashem, where Kreskes is going to do what I think is normally attributed to Kierkegaard, um, but I think Kreskes really gets credit for it. So Kreskes was born in around 1340. He died in 1410 or early 1411. He was the leader of Catalonian uh, Jewry. He features prominently in Benji Gampel's new book about the um, uh, riots of, of 1390 and 1391. Um, and he was actually, it's amazing, he is the figure most responsible for the demolition of the Aristotelian worldview. Um, the first section of his Or Hashem does an incredible thing where the, the Rambam begins the second section of the guide by listing as almost dogmas the 25, 26, depending on what you think of number 26, conclusions of Aristotelian physics, metaphysics, and logic. And then the Rambam kind of mobilizes those to produce six proofs of God's existence. Crescus does something no one had ever done before, which is he takes that as a curriculum. And for each one, he gives the different formulations of it that have been offered, marshals all the arguments for and against, 
and says whether he thinks it's been proven, disproven, or uncertain. He thinks about basically half have been proven, a quarter have been, have been disproven, and about a quarter are, we're not sure. And he had major kind of innovations like the possibility of a vacuum, the coherence of the idea of infinity, um, et cetera, which leads him as an aside. We had a Facebook exchange about this. Kreska says, I mean, he, said, he, he ends his book actually. So th that's the first part. He takes this kind of critical project and he uses it to demolish all six of the Rambam's proofs of God's existence and concludes the first section with the idea that there, uh, there are no possible proofs of God's existence. And he actually reads the, the uh, Midrash of Avraham in the Burning Palace in this way. Right? Avraham looks out at the world and can only be moved to a question. Is the world here without someone running it? And he's left in a state of a question until God speaks back. With the implication being, the furthest you will get on a religious path is of multiple plausible interpretations of this world. You will have questions. You will not, if you, if you have answers about the world, you are either wrong or you're a prophet. Right? Those are the two options. Or you're lying to yourself. So that's book number one. Um, then Crestus goes actually through kind of different things and, and the, he concludes with my favorite part, which is religiously important questions that we don't know the answers to, like reincarnation, are there demons, and my favorite, is there intelligent life on other planets, where he says, probably, because if you have an infinitely good God, why would they just create one planet? And by the way, there's a Gemara in Avodazara that what does God do all day? God visits 18,000 other worlds. He's like, well, what's God doing on them? Checking in on them just like he does on us. It's so sweet. Um, so, um, so, okay, so I, I actually am not going to read this inside, but I'll just, I'll summarize what Kreskis, the way, well, we'll read the first part just to get clear on it. So two matters have been clarified above. He's done some heavy lifting here. First, beliefs and knowledge are acquired independently from the will. So this is the critical moment for him. He thinks that it is not coherent to have reward and punishment for beliefs because we experience our beliefs as unchosen, unlike our actions, which we experience as chosen, right? I could give you a threat or an, a promise, like if you open that door right now, I'll give you a million dollars, and you could do it. Whereas if I said, if you believe that today is Sunday, I'll give you a million dollars, you couldn't do it. And Kreska says, given that, that we actually experience our beliefs about the world, not as reflections of us, but as reflections of the world, that, to, to have reward and punishment for the content of beliefs would be as incoherent as saying, you know, everyone born, I don't know, like, you know, in Connecticut will go into heaven, but everyone born in, you know, New Jersey will go to hell. I don't know, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth there. Like, but, right, these, these things that are outside of us are, would be decisive. So he thinks that that's incoherent. And he suggests as an alternative that what's religiously salient is not the content of your belief, but the stance you take towards that belief. Do you invest energy in arriving mm -hmm. at true beliefs? Do you feel like anxiety if you feel like your beliefs are not grounded or not coherent with the tradition? Do you feel like relief and joy and satisfaction when your beliefs do line up with the tradition? Because those things, the relief and the effort and the energy and the anxiety are disclosive of our wills. So Kreskes, in that framework, wants to now read the Gemara from Shabbat we had about the holding the mountain over them. And he says, in Exodus, in the Exodus, there was no religious significance to belief. It was, belief was compelled upon them like the mountain over their heads. Well, like, yeah, you just went through the sea, and you went through right, the man, it comes. Now, they have a lot of conflict with God, but there doesn't seem to be any real doubt about God's existence, right? Like, that was clearly implausible. Kreskis says it's only, and so therefore, that a person was a believer was of zero religious significance in the Exodus. Because it didn't tell you anything about them. It just told you about the fact that they were living in the generation of the Exodus. 
Nowadays, in Shushan, we have the opportunity when God is, we can, all we can see is God's hiddenness. Now our belief means something. It actually tells us not something about the world as it is, but something about us. Um, or the stance we take towards our belief. And he says, like, this is actually the birth of the possibility of theologically significant belief or personally significant engagement with theology. Only occurs in a world where, where doubt is a coherent option. Or maybe even the better option, right? Belief becomes almost heroic on this picture. Um, and so I wanted to, like, I feel like that's like a little bit of a more intellectualizing picture right. than like we're talking about like inglorious bastards. But it also <laughs> tries to turn like a sense of the, the bleakness of the world. Like what does it mean in that world to walk around saying like, you know, I think there might be order to this burning palace, right? That's the kind of the picture that Crescas leaves us with is really acknowledging, right, in Reva's world, like what does it mean to be, have fidelity to a covenant of someone uh, with a being like you, you know off, all too often can't uh, achieve the right outcomes, right? It's not just like a simple one-to-one -one obvious thing. It actually is like something that's like a choice and a commitment. Um, and is that sense like meaningful and heroic. Um, I'm going to wrap up here. I'm happy to stick around for questions. Uh, it's 5.45 by the end of the day, Asher Koch. <laughs>